Would you now take your Bibles and open them to the 27th chapter of the book of Acts. We are rapidly making our way toward the closure of this book. And I will, as usual, be sad to see it go, but it's still in the Bible. You can read it anytime you like. But today we're kind of biting off a big chunk, or if you want me to be more professional, a large paracope of Scripture here. Uh, it's 44 verses, so you're going to have to listen fast to keep up. And by the way, it would be extremely helpful if you had a map and one of these days, Lord willing, we will have a way to project for you a map if we needed to do it so you can see that this trip that Paul takes that ultimately results in a shipwreck uh, was quite the trip. He's basically sa uh, sailing in the direction of sort of a northeast, northwest trajectory and the man goes, uh, the boats go all over the body of water. Uh, they go backwards. Instead of going west, they go east. They go north, uh, due north. They come back south. They come almost down to Africa. Um, it's quite a trip. You often wonder why, if God intended the Lord Jesus in a vision told Paul, you will testify of me in Rome, why they didn't just sail in a nice, smooth, straight line to Rome. Well, if you know anything about life, you know it doesn't work that way. And so we'll see that more uh, today. So give attention now, please, to the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adraminium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So he's, he's on two ships in this trip so far. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, Salmone. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacey. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than he, to what Paul said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, 
a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter, or northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you uh, has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther off, they took a sounding and again found 15 fathoms. That means they're getting close to land. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have not uh, continued in suspense and without food, that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head and of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and they began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors 
and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today as we take a look at this chapter where Paul and 275 other passengers experienced a shipwreck, that you would minister to us, you would speak to us, because we ourselves experience storms, metaphorically, not storms on the sea, but rather storms in life. And we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight on how to learn to trust you with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledging you, knowing that you will direct our steps. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's on his way to Rome on a mission from God. And he boards the ship probably expecting it not to take nearly as long as this trip ultimately takes. He had been delayed in Caesarea for two years, putting his apostolic commission to preach to the Gentiles seemingly on hold. The snail-paced, ill-fated sea voyage only further exacerbates the bad timing in his life. It seems like when you look at Paul, he never gets a break. He never seems, nothing seems to ever come easy for him. And of course, from a divine perspective, everything has a purpose and everything has it, has, uh, that God wills occurs. But from a human's per perspective, we cannot help but wonder whether this journey only added to the apostle's sense of frustration by the torturous journey of the various vessels from the Caesarean harbor to the empire's capital. Capital. It looked as though creation itself seemed reluctant to get him there. First by a lack of wind, then by too much wind. After all, the apostle comes within a hair's breadth of drowning in the sea. How could that be? Luke's presence on board the vessel... He uses the word we 16 times in the chapel, uh, chapter, so he's there. Accounts for the enormous technical and geographical detail of this arduous journey. It also highlights something of the theological and pastoral importance. David Gooding, in his book on the book of Acts, says this, From the moment they boarded the doomed ship in the cold, wild morning, it broke up on the shore of Malta, there was no miracle. No divine power calmed the sea. As some years previously, Galilee's tempest had subsided in recognition of her master's voice. No angelic powers conveyed the ship unscathed into the port. 
All the passengers and crews were saved, but only after two weeks and more of agonized suffering and a final and glorious hair-raising scramble from the wreck through the surf to the shore. Another scholar by the name of Ben Witherington says this, The unexpected shipwreck raises many questions. If Paul was God's own appointed apostle and ambassador sent to represent the gospel of God uh, to the highest authority on earth, and if the God is the God who created and controls the nature, nature and rules over the surging sea when its waves mount up and stills them, then why did not God's kingly rule over the Mediterranean uh, to give his ambassador a smoother pas uh, passage instead of torturing him for two weeks and throwing him up on uh, up like a drowned rat on the beach. What a way to go, huh? It's understandable that when providence means to him in a reluctant and fleeing prophet like Jonah, then God would resort to these tactics. But Paul is a willing servant. Paul wants to go to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel in Rome. And yet, he's thrown, as it were, into the whims of an uncooperative sea. And by the way, once he gets to Malta, he's bitten by a snake. So, so the man is not having a good 14 days or more here, to say the least. It is estimated that during the Apostle's 30 years' ministry, he sailed some 3,000 miles. So Paul had some experience as, as being on a boat and traveling. He understood a great deal about uh, the uh, mechanisms and how to work on the sea, uh, which is why he gave some seafaring advice. But um, here we are. And so what are we to make of all of this? Uh, the passage is vivid with detail about Paul's attempted trip to Rome, but it also presents us with many other issues that are quite important. And so rather than focusing in on every little port he stopped in, what I want to do is sort of look at, a, at the bigger picture as to what it means and how it can practically apply to our lives. Uh, by the way, uh, people who are famous in regard to sailing have looked at this account and said, while it wasn't written by a professional sailor, it is a very accurate description of what goes on in the Mediterranean Sea during this time of the year. And we know what time of the year it was because of the fast for Passover that Paul uh, ended while on board. Uh, one man by the name of James Smith, who's Scottish, said, No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man, uh, not a sailor, could have written in a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation. So we have a legitimate text here. But how does Paul, how does God give his servant Paul encouragement during the voyage? Uh, how did God sustain him through this particular voyage? Well, first, Paul gave Paul, uh, God gave Paul two forms of Christian fellowship. Notice that Luke and Aristarchus were able to go with Paul in the company uh, with other prisoners. 
And so I don't know how Luke and Aristarchus got on board unless they saw themselves or represented themselves probably as slaves. The first ship was just a little like local train line, but the second ship in particular was not a passenger, passenger vessel, but was rather a state ship under the direct authority of the Roman government for grain trade. Why would the Roman centurion let two men simply tag along for a long, costly, and dangerous journey? Some have argued that Luke and Aristarchus must have traveled as Paul's slaves. It's speculative, but it does give us some reason why they were on board, humanly speaking. We know God had them there for other reasons. But in addition to these two companions, God provides a very unexpected episode of encouragement and spiritual refreshment to Paul at Sidon, as we see in verse 3. When the centurion, Julius, allowed him to debark, or disembark, and spend time with the Christians of the church in that town. And again, we don't know the circumstances that led to this privilege. How had Paul impressed the commander so much that he trusted his prisoner to leave and return? He probably sent a guard with him. But that doesn't matter. What is interesting is that the Christians in Sidon saw to the apostles' needs, which could not mean his physical needs. Surely Paul had sufficient food and other basic necessities. Rather, this must refer to the deep encouragement of Christian love. And the basic point and principle of these verses is that Christian fellowship is a need which we neglect to our own peril. We were made in the image of God, and God himself is a being in relationship. We were made for relationships. You need Christian community. You were made for that, and it is one of the means and methods God uses to build us up into faith, to encourage us, to use our gifts, to function with the talents and callings that we have. You need Christian fellowship. And if you cut yourself off from the Christian community, you are putting yourself in peril and danger. You are a sitting duck for the enemy of our souls. And so God graciously provided community for Paul, first in the form of Luke and Aristarchus, but secondly, this church in Sidon. We need fellowship. We need community. Now, sometimes... Being close up with other Christians can be messy because we're not plaster saints. We're not fully sanctified. We're just beginning to discover how needy and bent and broken we are. But we need community. We need to connect. We need to be a part of a body. Second, God sends Paul in this instance also to refresh him a special word of encouragement in verses 23 to 25. And at this point, it's important to see the pattern with God. Every few years in studying Paul's missionary journey, especially in times of extreme trial, Paul gives a special word of encouragement direct to his heart. We saw that God did this in Corinth earlier, also in Jerusalem, and we have pointed out that we do not need to read this as a promise that Jesus will give us dreams and visions, but he does show us 
that God's will by His Spirit, by bringing His Word home to our hearts in unusually vivid ways. God has a way of speaking to us, not necessarily or audibly or through dreams and visions, but through the canon of Scripture, through His Word, as the Holy Spirit takes that Word and impresses upon our hearts with a special nuance and sense that God is speaking to us. Paul prays for that in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. Therefore, we have two basic ways for God uh, to encourage us during times of ordeal. First, His words brought home to us by His Spirit. And secondly, fellowship with His children. So God had not abandoned Paul. God had provided Paul encouragement all the way through the trip. Now, notice also in this text, and scholars point this out, some who are not very nice about it, say Paul contradicted himself in this passage. Because in verse 10, he seems to say one thing, that he fears great loss to the ship and to our own lives. But if you look down at verse 21, what does he say? He says very definitely that not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. But two factors show us why Paul has validity and warrant to change his mind on this. First, in verse 10, the prediction is very vague. He does not say the ship will be destroyed or who will die, only that there will be disaster and loss. He actually makes no prediction one way or the other about the ship or the life of anyone. He is saying, I foresee a disaster at sea if we continue with terrible loss, perhaps even to uh, our lives. Here he claims no divine authority for his opinion. Rather, he just is giving advice. And therefore, we can assume that he is speaking as an unusually seasoned traveler on the Mediterranean. It is often overlooked that Paul had previous experience with terrifying experiences at sea. He tells us, uh, he told the Corinthians in a letter previous to this event that he had once spent 24 hours in the open sea until he was either picked up or washed ashore. We can imagine that anyone who has been through an experience like that is going to be extremely wary and cautious about seafaring for the rest of his life. Paul understood what could happen, and he understood where they were, and he warned them. Thus, when they passed the date of the fast, Paul's heart and even his intuition told him that they should stay put and stay on land. Therefore, Paul's original prediction is seen as a general warning, and that warning was absolutely right. But in verse 21, where he mentions, he explains that he has had a divine revelation through an angel which revised his original intuition. Now he told us that there's going to be a definite loss of the ship, but there is not going to be any loss of life due to the graciousness of God. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a disaster like this? Well, we are in the tail end, we all hope, of the pandemic, but perhaps you have had personal disasters that look like a shipwreck. 
First, there are many times we are caught in life's storms because we fail to heed a very basic principle and command of God. You know, there are ten commandments in the Bible, not ten suggestions. Not ten Dear Abby quotes. They are ten commandments. And they lay down the most basic principles of life. Don't lie to people. Be diligent and loving. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Honor your parents. Though the world is filled with terrible suffering and evil and will overtake us even if we walk obediently, it is amazing how many of our life's storms were due from failing to heed God's Word and His advice in it. It is ironic that since Paul has written much of the New Testament, many of us have been in exactly the same boat as the sailors with our life coming apart because we failed to take Paul's advice. For example, I know of a person who ran aground because he incurred too much debt and he ignored Paul's instruction in the book of Romans about going into debt Rather, incur few debts and pay off the ones you have promptly. And many think Paul is approved when it comes to sex. Very mistaken view. But have dismissed his advice to their peril and pain. I want to tell you something. You cannot violate God's word and be okay. You just can't do it. You think you can. You can convince yourself that you're doing okay. You can live in denial and float down that boat toward Egypt. But let me tell you something. You can't violate God's Word any more than you can violate the law of gravity. If you decide to take a jump off a four-story building when you're on top, guess what? You're not going to float up. up. You're going to hit the ground, and it's going to be disastrous. And why do we think we can play around with God's Word and come out okay? There are consequences Justified, yes. Forgiven, yes. The righteousness of Christ, mine, yes. I disobey God. There are consequences. Forgiven consequences notwithstanding. Most of us can list many times where we have invited disaster, and this one speaks most closely to me, where we have invited disaster into our lives by our own actions, but God graciously lessened the consequences, and we escaped basically unscathed, just as He so kindly allowed the crew and passengers of Paul's vessels to escape. Many of us have taken stupid and selfish risk or have mistreated other people or have lied and cheated or have broken promises, but God mitigated, mitigated the outcomes so that they were not nearly as damaging as they could have been. A pastor I had when I was in my 20s used to say this a lot. Never ask God for justice. You might get it. Never ask God for justice. And the theological principle behind that is helpful. We tend to keep a record of all the times and places where we didn't get the good outcome we thought we deserved. But we don't keep a record of all the times God prevented us from receiving the bad outcomes we do deserve. God has treated us with great grace and mercy. Now notice how they responded to Paul's advice. 
In verse 10, their response was basically ignored him. Uh, the obvious reason is that uh, when they listened to him, uh, there were two reasons, one obvious and not so obvious, as to how they responded to his leadership. The obvious reason is that Paul was proven right about the danger of proceeding. Though many of the men were sailors, Paul had proven that his extensive experience had given him excellent nautical expertise. Therefore, he had shown his seafaring wisdom to be the equal of theirs, if not superior. This certainly had an impact on the crew. Previously, they probably thought he was just another landlubber now that they realized his background and competence in these matters. Maybe a couple of sailors thought, so you stayed in a Holiday Inn last night. That doesn't make you a sailor today. But there is a less obvious reason that they began to follow him. It's most interesting to see how Paul, in verses 21 and 22, uses the fact that he had been right and they had been wrong about the decision to sail. On the one hand, he does remind them that his judgment was vindicated, you should have taken my advice, but Paul does not have a proud, arrogant, I told you so attitude. The only reason he brings it up is not to rub their noses in it, but only so that they will listen to his assurance and comfort. See his point? He says, I only mentioned my previous advice, so you will take my current advice. Don't panic. I assure you that we will all be saved. Keep up your courage. How interesting Paul only commends himself to the extent necessary for them to listen to his comfort. But the second reason is that they listened to him in verses 30 to 32. If Paul had lorded it over them, if he had mocked their stupidity, they would certainly not have followed his leadership later. He demonstrated his concern for them, and he probably got up and gave them an assuring speech at a time when nearly everyone would have been in despair of survival. So we know often that the biggest skeptics and unbelievers are quite happy to have someone pray over them before major surgery or other crises. And so they listen to Paul. But what does that tell us about leadership? Two things. Leadership involves at least two dimensions. One is task, one is relational. Task is getting things done properly and uh, expertly reaching goals. On the other hand, there is the relational aspect of leadership. That is, we're working with people and they are not our slaves. <laughs> and, and we can't hire them and fire them in the church. So you're working with people. And of course the challenge of leadership is how to balance getting stuff done and working with people. Task-oriented people tend to leave a trail of bodies while they're getting stuff done. They run over people. And they are a relational nightmare. And relational people tend to love people, want to spend time with people, but sometimes they don't ever get anything done because they're too, being too relational and not doing the task. Paul is a beautiful combination of the Holy Spirit's work in his life and his own temperament as a man who is both task-oriented, he likes to help them survive, at the same time he cares about their soul. I hate to quote Zig Ziglar anytime, anywhere, but I'm going to quote him. 
because I sat in a seminar of his one time uh, when I was debating on whether to go to seminary. He didn't know it, and I didn't know it. I was working as a probation officer in Dallas, Texas for juvenile delinquents. Great preparation for the ministry. And so while working there, uh, we were trying to help children develop a better self-esteem or concept, which made me want to say, well, quit stealing from people, you know. But they... <laughs> They sent me to the seminar, and I kind of half didn't want to go because I thought it was hokey. But he said one statement in that seminar that stayed with me. He said, people do not care at all how much you know or how much expertise you think you have until they know how much you care about them. People want to know you care. You can entertain them. That's why in leadership training, I, I, I use three dimensions in training elders and deacons and other leaders in the church. I talk about logos, having sound theology, understanding, knowing, being competent in handling the Word. And I talk about ethos, having character, the character of those who are blameless before Him, but also pathos, relational contact. Because you'll never be a great leader if you don't have all three. People will put up with you for a while as a preacher if you're pretty strong in the uh, Lagos situation because they long to be fed, but it'll catch up with you if those other things don't develop. And they did with Paul. And so Paul was only a prisoner, and he never sought literally to take the ship over, but he did have influence, and he helped them save their own lives. Paul forbid the sailors to abandon the ship. If they had done so, they would have been lost in this little lifeboat. Understanding as the storm raged, and it did rage like crazy, they, they took the lifeboat, trying to sneak it on board so that they could get away. Another thing you need to know is the soldiers on the boat were under this kind of authority and law. If they lost one single life, their life was demanded because of it. And so they wanted to kill the prisoners to exempt themselves from losing any of them. But Paul persuaded them otherwise. Now I need to hurry and get to this last point. The tension in this passage is very remarkable when Paul declares that not one of you will be lost. He does invoke divine authority. This was a revelation of God, direct from an angel. And this was not Paul's intuition or opinion. Now that means that this historical outcome is fixed. It cannot be in doubt. The Bible says God is not a man who changes his mind or repents. We are told flatly that any prophet whose prophecy does not come is a false prophet. There'd be a lot fewer evangelists on TV if that was enforced, wouldn't it? It's striking that Paul does not feel or say, since I know we're all going to be saved, it doesn't matter what we do. Rather, he says that everyone has to act responsibly if they are to reach safety. The pre preceding hour to this worship service, Mark taught a Sunday school class on the omnipotence and sovereignty of God. And so what I'm going to say here will probably resonate with that, even though I didn't hear it. Uh, but he and I have talked about such matters, and he's almost right about it. No, he is right about it. How is this a unique approach to the fate versus free will debate? 
For centuries, human thinking has given us two either-or options to answer the question, why does a particular event happen in history? One answer has been fate. Fate caused it. This view states that human agents are not causing history through their choices, but that history is conditioned or conditioning and causes their choices. Things happen because they're destined and fixed either by blind chance or blind fate or by some kind of demigod or god. Different religions and philosophies have different versions of this particular view, but the best example of this generic approach is the story of Oedipus. He is fated to kill his father and marry his mother, as the oracle predicts at his birth. Because of this uh, prediction, every effort is made to thwart fate, but in the end, despite the choices of human beings, he lives out his fate. The second answer is free will, meaning that human choices can alter the events of history. Many science fiction stories are based on this idea. For example, the popular, and this is a, a little ways back, uh, Back to the Future movies, in this view, our decisions and choices affect the flow of history and future events. So if we travel from the future back into the past, we can alter events to change ultimately the future. Does that make sense? No, yes. <laughs> if you've seen the movie, it does. But Paul's actions show that Christianity doesn't buy into either one of those views. Unique among all religions and all philosophies of mankind, it insists both that everything is determined by the plan of God and our choices and decisions matter and are significant and do make a difference. There's no other way to explain Paul's behavior in this shipwreck. No other way. It's not possible. And so, Paul's actions show that there is no other way uh, to explain Paul's behavior. Christianity, in other words, believes this. Historical events are determined by God through our choices. While the fatalist view believes the historical events are determined in spite of our choices, and the free will view believes that historical events are not determined at all, they are caused by us. But Christianity believes historical events are determined by God through our choices. Stay with me. Why is this view so intensely practical? Intellectually, this subject gives people fits. One of the most mild-mannered men I've ever known in my life is my father-in-law, who's a better man than I am in many ways. And once we got into a discussion about predestination and free will, and this mild-mannered man jumped out of his chair and stared me in the face and said, you can't possibly believe that. I said, calm down. <laughs> you ask me. <laughs> And my children were supporting me, by the way, which is one of the last... No, uh, that, they were supporting me in that moment. And he said, uh, someone else in the room said, Oh no, they taught it to their children too. <laughs> the world's coming to an end. But why is this view so intensely practical? It's not easy to explain logically how two things 
God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility can coexist together. There have been some good efforts, but we won't go into them here this morning. The beauty of the Christian view is seen mainly in how absolutely practical it is. Think, if on the one hand everything was fixed despite our actions, what possible incentive would I ever have to work hard or do my best at anything? On the other hand, if my decisions really determine my life course and the course of history, I would be afraid to make any choices at all. If we think back a few years, we can always see how completely wrong we were about some very important issues. How could we have confidence to make choices knowing how limited our own wisdom is? If I know, and if I know, they can revise God's plan for me. But if we look at Paul, we see exactly how unique his approach is, and it can give us enormous strength. On the one hand, we have to strain every nerve and fiber of our being to do our absolute best because our behavior counts and our choices have real consequence. On the other hand, we can relax knowing that whatever we do or whatever happens, it cannot change God's wise purposes and plans for us. God's purpose and plan for Paul was to get to Rome, and he got there. Not in a straight line. Not easy. But God's promises are true. He will get you there. But that doesn't mean you become a K-Sara-Sara Christian. Anybody in here ever heard of Doris Day? Most of you are too young. You know who Doris Day is? She sang a song called K-Sara-Sara. Whatever will be, will be. You didn't know you were going to get that today, did you? The fatalist approach to life. Some of us reformed people can slink and slip our way into fatalism and basically say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. Why pray? Why share the gospel? God's already picked. He's already elected. He's already set apart people that belong to him. The first answer to that is we don't know who they are. Uh, somebody in class one time asked R.C. Sproul, why evangelize? He said, because God commanded. End of story. Do it. Because God said, do it. Because God uses secondary means to accomplish His purposes. God uses our prayers and the preaching of the gospel in order to accomplish His great work here on earth. He will get it done but you may miss out on the blessing of sharing the gospel with your friend or family member or coworker or fellow student. You see, we don't become passive. We're not robots. We're not automatons. We're not just, you know, floating around on pillory beds of ease. We're in the middle of it. We're in the fight. Everything we do has meaning. It has consequences. And we are to strive with all that is within us, to do what God has called us to do. At the same time, we can relax. I can relax. Every sermon I preach, and I don't want an award for this, and I'm not praising myself, but I give it all I got. I study, I prepare, I give you everything I got, I don't leave it on the field. 
And I know that I can do that and not one significant thing will happen. But I know that God uses it sometimes. People tell me, God spoke to me when you said this or you said that. You see, you just can't get outside the conundrum. It's there. God is sovereign. You are responsible. They are friends, Charles Hatton Spurgeon said. Don't try to resolve them. Um, J.I. Packer said they're parallel lines that never meet except in eternity. When you see Jesus, then you'll understand how it works out. But your responsibility and my responsibility is to do what God has called us to do. And that is exactly what Paul said. Paul tells them, if you get off the ship, you're going to die. They didn't. And they all washed up on the shore in Malta. And so shipwrecks happen in our lives. And we can't always make sense of them. But what can we do? We can trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. And lean not to our own understanding. Here's the problem. You're in the storm and you're trying to figure it out and you're just sinking deeper and faster. You cannot figure it out. You, you will never know why this side of eternity and I'm not even sure you'll know why then. It's too big for you. There's too much going on. God's just not working with you. He's working with everybody involved. But that is God's way and His ways. But if you're going through life's storm, trust in the Lord with all of your being. That is, look outside of yourself and rely upon and lean upon Him and rest your case on His promises. And then He promises, I will direct your steps. And that's how you move out in confidence during life storms. You think about that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the 27th chapter of the book of Acts. It is an amazing, amazing narrative regarding your execution of your will to get your servant to Rome and preserving 276 people alive who had every reason to be totally obliterated. We thank you that you're the same God today, yesterday, today, and forever. And that we can trust you because you're the only one who is worthy of our entire trust and confidence. And this we pray, knowing that you will work this into our hearts and provide us with comfort and hope and assurance. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.